Gracious Father, thank you for your everlasting love to us. Help us to understand your love more fully. Through the grace of Christ Jesus, we ask it. Amen. Please be seated. So we've been talking the last few weeks about what you want on your tombstone. And some of the things that we've looked at, some of the things people have had written on their tombstones, some things that other people wrote for them. Some were humorous, some were kind of sad, some a little biting. Uh, They want to turn that just a little bit. And ask the question, if you could write your own epitaph, what would you write? What do you want to be engraved on your tombstone? There have been people through the centuries, of course, who have done just that. They have planned ahead and they've had things written on their tombstones. John Kay, who died in 1732, had this put on his tombstone. Life is a jest and all things show it. I thought so once, now I know it. Alexander Pope, for one, who would not be buried in Westminster Abbey and his place of honor, wrote, Heroes and kings your distance keep. In peace, let one poor poet sleep. Who never flattered folks like you, let Horace blush and Virgil too. One of you told me that what you, you think a, a great thing to put on a tombstone, have written yourself to write on a tombstone was, I told you I was sick. <laughs> a few weeks ago, when, we were, when I started this after service, or I, actually after the first sermon, I was up in the campus center and this college student stopped me and we were talking about the sermon a little bit and he said, so what do you want on your tombstone? kind of caught me off guard. You know, it's Sunday afternoon. I'm tired. I hadn't really thought about it. Uh, uh, uh. I said, well, I guess maybe something like he was faithful. He said, yeah, I kind of like that too. A couple of weeks ago after the service, someone said to me, I've been thinking about that. And I think what I've decided I'd like to have on my tombstone is Jesus gave her joy. I like that. There's something in that that I see in what John is trying to tell us about himself as we read through his gospel. John doesn't doesn't refer to himself by name in the gospel, but five times he uses a phrase to identify himself. It's a phrase that's had a whole lot of theorizing about what exactly it means and, and who's saying it and all of these things. It's first used in John 13, 23, and then John 19, 26, and then John chapter 20, verse 2, and twice more in John 21, the chapter from which we read a few moments ago. And verse 7 of John 21 says, Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. And as soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he'd taken it off, and jumped into the water. Verse 20 says, Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? There's something in the way that John identifies himself that speaks to 
what he hopes his identity to be. And I think there is something in that identification that speaks to you and me about our lives. What does it mean for John to refer to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved? It could be that John is using this as a a term of exclusivity. And what he's saying is, I'm the disciple whom Jesus loves. He doesn't care that much about all the rest of them. That didn't seem right to me, so I, I kind of pushed that one aside. It could be that it's a, uh, it's a sort of a phrase about degree of love. And maybe John is saying, Jesus loves all the disciples, but he loves me more than he loves the other disciples. I mean, John does seem to have a unique relationship with Jesus. It is to John that Jesus says, take care of my mother when Jesus hangs on the cross. John is the one who sits closest to Jesus at the the Last Supper. John is the one who receives this great revelation from Jesus that he records for us. John lives the longest, at least it seems to fall from all that we can tell, of all the disciples. And it's certainly possible, maybe likely, that Jesus has, he's closer to some of them than others. There's certainly this inner circle of Peter, James, and John that go on experiences and encounters with Jesus that some of the other disciples do not. But to say that Jesus loves John more than he loves the other disciples just doesn't seem right to me either. And that makes me wonder if it's simply a phrase of description and identity. John could have said, I'm the disciple who caught all the fish. I'm the disciple who sat next to Jesus. I'm the disciple who received this great revelation. But instead, John summarizes his entire life, not by the actions he commits for Jesus, but by the feelings that Jesus has for him. And it's in this phrase that John seems to to identify his existence. In essence, John is saying, that's what I want on my tombstone. This is how I want to be remembered. You know, John's a man of ambition. He, he and his brother James are called the sons of thunder. They make noise. They like to get things done. They like to be in the middle of things. It's James and John who come to Jesus and say, you know, when you get all your kingdom in order, we'd like to be on the right and left. We'd like to be in the highest places in your kingdom. And the other disciples are, of course, very upset about that, primarily, I think, because they didn't think of it first. You know, John is ambitious. And he could have made any number of statements about his life of this is what I've accomplished. But he's so overwhelmed by what Jesus has done for him, so overwhelmed by the love of Jesus that no other idea can truly encapsulate his existence. And so in a sense, he's saying, put this on my tombstone and you've got it. If you understand this about me, then everything I'm trying to do and everything that I am will make sense to you. And if we believe that we are loved by Jesus... There's something about that that brings about change in our lives. So what does it mean to be loved by Jesus? When you scan through the scriptures and you begin to boil this down, Jesus' love has an unconditional nature to it. Paul writes to the Romans, It was while we were yet sinners that Christ came and died for us. 
We hadn't become good and sort of earned our way to Jesus doing this. It was when we could do nothing else, Jesus came. The most famous passage, I would suspect, in all of the Bible, John quotes Jesus' words to Nicodemus, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And John himself writes in his first letter, this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. We didn't do anything to deserve the love of Jesus. It's unconditional. There's also an eternal nature to Jesus' love. All of our accomplishments on earth have an expiration date. But not the love of Jesus. Jeremiah 31.3 tells us that God loves us with an everlasting love. It never wavers. It never changes. It never ends. And there is something about the love of God that is parental. I say that because sometimes when we have a hard time understanding the love of God because we're like children with a parent. You know, as a child, your parents don't let you do everything that you want to do. And as a child, that's frustrating and you think your parents don't love you and you think that, you know, if only they were nice like Johnny's parents. Let, Let him do what he wants to do. But only irresponsible parents let their children do anything they want to do. I was thinking about, if you think of a group of, of children out playing, and the afternoon turns into dusk, and pretty soon, one by one, there are, there are shouts from, this is what it was like in my neighborhood, there are shouts from different homes, time to come home for supper, come on in, time, and, and one by one, all of the children go to their own homes. Except for one child. He's left there. Because there's no one home to make him suffer. There's no one home who really cares that much about whether he's there or not. And he can stay out and play as long as he wants to. And you could say that he's the one who has the freedom. His parents really love him because he is free. He can do anything he wants to. I don't think he would say that. I think he'd trade in a moment somebody saying, time for supper. And God doesn't necessarily give us everything we want because it's not good for us. It would be irresponsible of him. But it's hard sometimes for us as children to grasp that. It's hard to believe and to embrace that we are loved unconditionally and eternally by Jesus, particularly as we go through all the stuff of life. And there is a lot of stuff in life that can skew our view of Jesus' love. Even things like unanswered prayer, where we wonder, Lord, why aren't you giving me this? Maybe it's something in our background. Maybe it's, it's the way we were raised. Maybe it's experiences we've been through that have hardened us about anyone loving us. Maybe someone who we care deeply for made promises of love and abandoned us. And now we don't trust anyone, even God, to really love us. We live in a culture that tells us continually, if you want to be loved, you have to earn it. And that is a message that probably takes hold in this community of overachievers, maybe more than anywhere else. 
Maybe it's shame we feel for failing in our walk with Christ. Maybe it's just the troubles of life, the difficulties and the pains, and feeling as though life isn't fair. And it's hard for us to reconcile that with God who says, I love you. In March of 2009, Dutch artist Johan Vanderdong decided that God needed a telephone number, and so he created one. He used a cell phone number and set it up, and people could call and He said, you know, people would normally come to church and pray. Now they just have to call this number and they can pray. In the first week, a thousand people called that number. A thousand people. And you say, wow, that's pretty amazing. it's, It's meeting a need. Well, maybe. Because when you call and the and the phone is answered, here's what you hear on the other end of the line. This is the voice of God. I'm not able to speak to you at the moment, but please leave a message. I don't know. I just don't think that was going to do it for me. But there is something in that that resonates with us. When life is hard, when things aren't going the way we want them to, when we're struggling, there is a temptation to think God isn't really listening. It's just some kind of message on a phone. We say... I doubt if anyone here would say, I don't believe God loves me. But in here, we struggle. And that struggle causes us to act the way we do and to treat each other the way that we do. Because our relationships will never be what they are intended to be until we begin to understand and embrace that we are people Jesus loves. The work and the effort that we do will never be what we intend it to be or certainly what what God intends it to be until we begin to believe and embrace that we're people loved by Jesus. All the struggles in life are meaningless until we begin to understand and embrace that we are people loved by Jesus. It's one of the ways that, that we know that we're coming to accept our identity as disciples who are loved by Jesus, how we treat each other. And so instead of grasping for attention, we willingly give away our attention to other people. Instead of fighting to get our own way, we live with a sense of surrender and sacrifice and humility. And instead of trying to get people to love us, we give love away. But you can't do that until you truly believe you're loved. There's a song at the Gaithers wrote, I don't know, it was in the late 70s maybe, had a line in that simply said, I'm loved, I am loved, I can risk loving you. For the one who knows me best loves me most. There's great truth in those simple words. I'll be honest with you, I struggle to believe that Jesus loves me. I know my failures, I know how many times I go my own way instead of God's way. I know my feelings of disappointment when God doesn't do what I want him to do and the frustration I feel about that and the accusations that I may make against God in those moments. And despite all that I know intellectually and theologically and despite all of the ways in which God reveals himself to me, 
I wrestle to believe that God truly loves me. And I suspect you do too. It is the wrestling of our human natures to believe that we who are frail and fragile and sinful could really be unconditionally and eternally loved by a God who is holy and perfect. And that's why it is not just enough to say, I believe God loves me. We are called to embrace that love. And I think that's why John identifies himself not just as someone who is loved by Jesus, but as the disciple who is loved by Jesus. There is a difference. Disciples are people who have opened their hearts to the spirit of Christ. We want Christ to be to be true. We want Christ to, to be with us and in us and filling us. I mentioned last week an idea that Bob Wenberg shares in his book, Faith at the Edge. And he talks about the difference between wishing and hoping. And he says, what my wife wants from me is, is, is not merely to believe that she exists. I mean, what is that? What she wants from me is to want her to exist. To rejoice in her existence. To be thankful and grateful for her existence. To want her to be in the middle of everything I do and everything I am. And it's one thing to say, I believe Jesus loves me. It is something else entirely to want Jesus to love us. To want to be overwhelmed by the love of Jesus. To want our identity To be nothing more than to be a disciple whom Jesus loves. When I think about the way John describes himself, I'm convinced that what he's trying to tell us is that it is enough for him to be known as simply the disciple whom Jesus loves. Nothing more, nothing less. Nothing else could truly describe the most important thing about his life. This is his identity. This is how he wants people to know him. It's the essence of his existence. It's enough. But I suspect that not everybody understands that. So John stands up in a group and says, Hi, I'm John. I'm a disciple whom Jesus loves. And the people say, Oh, that's great, John. But what are you accomplishing for the kingdom? Who are you helping? How much scripture are you memorizing? What do your daily devotions look like, John? In the midst of all of that, Jesus said, John says, as important as all that stuff is, and it is important, it's enough for me to just be known as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And if we go to our graves and we have no worldly accomplishments, we have very little in the measure of success, but we truly believe that we are a disciple whom Jesus loves. Is that enough? Because ultimately, life is defined not by what we do for Jesus, but what he does for us. This is not idleness or laziness. There is nothing wrong with accomplishments. In fact, God prompts us to be people who accomplish things for him, for the kingdom, for this world. 
He calls us to be people who create and do and help and assist and go and grow and love. But if any of that is the source of our identity, then we have missed it. If all that we accomplish and our ability to accomplish things, if all of that is taken away, but we still know and embrace that we are a disciple whom Jesus loves, is that enough? I suspect that it's probably not. I think we want more. We want to be known as the disciple who accomplished great things for God. We want to be known as the disciple who had great faith. Or the disciple who had some kind of world or church recognition. It's great to be loved by Jesus, but I need more. Is it any wonder we are spiritually poor? That we keep looking for more. No wonder we convince ourselves that being with God and being with God's people might be negotiable. It's no wonder that we value faster, bigger, better, even though when we get to it, it's empty. As I was pondering this, my mind went to the book of Revelation. In chapters 2 and 3 are letters that, that John communicates that Jesus sends to seven churches in Asia Minor. And the first letter is to Ephesus. And John writes at the beginning of chapter 2, Jesus says, write this to Ephesus, the angel of the church. The one with seven stars in his right fist grip, striding through the golden seven light circle, speaks. I see what you've done. Your hard, hard work, your refusal to quit. I know you can't stomach evil, that you weed out apostolic pretenders. I know your persistence, your courage in my cause, that you never wear out. But you walked away from your first love. Why? What's going on with you anyway? Do you have any idea how far you've fallen? It's a Lucifer fall. Turn back, recover your dear early love. No time to waste, for I am well on my way to removing your light from the golden circle. As I pondered that, I wondered, is it possible that the first love they've lost is not their love for God, but that they've rejected God's love for them? What they're accomplishing is their identity. Being loved by Jesus is no longer enough for them. And John tells us that the result is pretty frightening. It's the curse of our fallen natures to want more than just being loved by God. It's what's going on in the Garden of Eden where God gives them so much and their response is, we just like a little bit more. And we want recognition from God eventually, definitely, but we'd like some recognition now too. And it's hard for us to understand why we just can't have both. And maybe we can. That's up to God. But if our recognition here is what's driving our life, we've missed it. So we say, let's build great churches. John says, 
Believe that you are loved by Jesus. We say, let's accomplish great things for God. John says, first believe that you're loved by Jesus. We say, let's keep busy for God. John says, believe that you're loved by Jesus. We've only understood the kingdom when we come to see that our identity, our legacy in life is first and foremost that we are disciples who are loved by Jesus. Author Randy Alcorn tells about a mission trip that he and his family took a number of years ago that included a visit to Egypt. And while they were there, his host took them to visit an abandoned graveyard that was located at the end of a garbage-filled alley. The host pointed out one particular tombstone, and it was that of, of William Borden, who was the heir to the Borden Dairy Estate. William was born in 1887, and by the age of 21, he was a millionaire. But he gave away virtually everything he had to missions. And he felt a call from God to share the gospel with Muslims who were living in China. And so he made his way, and he stopped in Egypt to learn Arabic. He was there a few months, and he contracted spinal meningitis, and he died at the age of 25. Never even got to China. And Alcorn says that I dusted off the inscription on the headstone of Borden's grave, and after describing his love for Christ and his commitment to and his love for the Muslim, Muslim people and his sacrifices for God's kingdom, the inscription ended, he said, with words that I've never forgotten. Apart from faith in Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. And I'd like to turn that phrase just a little bit. Apart from knowing that you are a loved disciple of Christ, fully embracing Christ's love as the defining element of your existence, there's no explanation for such a life. This is the path to transformation and to freedom and to joy. I wish I could stand in front of every single one of you and look you in the eye and say to you, you are loved by Jesus. Now embrace that love and go be his disciple. Holy Father, you know our struggle. Whatever may be keeping us from grasping, embracing, opening our hearts fully to your love, remove it. that we might desire nothing more than to be disciples whom Jesus loves. Amen.
I was preparing the sermon, I was reminded of a familiar story. I'm sure that some of you have heard it. About Karl Barth. You know, Karl Barth was probably one of the, the greatest theologians of the 20th century. Wrote volumes of material about the Christian faith and the church and philosophy. And a lot of it is pretty intensive reading. As he was coming to the end of his teaching career, there's a press conference and they were asking him all kinds of questions. And one of the reporters asked him, Dr. Bart, you have written a lot, you've studied a lot, you have pondered a lot of profound things. What's the most profound thing you know? And he said, The most profound thing I know I learned from my mother. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. It's so simple. But often, the most simple is the most profound. And so as we close this morning, we're going to sing this song that we kind of associate with Sunday school children. But has a powerful reminder and message for us. Let me invite you to stand. As we sing together, Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. the benediction.
I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all of God's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. This love that surpasses all knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Amen.